So I'm Tony Seeley. Uh, I am currently <laughs> a, a drama practitioner, um, and I've been using drama and theatre kind of work uh, since yeah, about almost three decades now. Or was it just over 1991? I think I um, emerged on the scene, and um, yeah, found the whole sort of territory of sort of training um and learning just amazing absolutely amazing um particularly because i've sort of found ways to um yeah sort of earn a living from it really and not sort of return back to any other sort of other non-creative work over the last couple of decades really being um sort of putting my hands in lots of different pies and different projects with different people in different stages of development, which has made me more creative. I feel a little bit kind of scatty with that process, running here, running there. But as we know, the freelance world, it's so rubbish sometimes that you have to be just doing all sorts of things just to kind of pay the rent. I know, I know. And it's a blessing to be able to reflect on that now. Um, when you're in a place, as you as you mentioned, where you can be creative and um, and make work every day and work with people, uh, so have you always been into drama? Is is theatre? Has it always been a love, or how did you end up in this occupation? Yeah, so um, so I kind of grew up in South London, um, in Brixton, and I grew up at a time when um, there was lots of youth clubs around, um, and um, sort of around me was um, a lot of uh, joy going to school, actually. Um, never really been interested in, never knew anything about theatre or drama or anything like that, acting um, whilst I was at school. But I do remember, um, actually, I did love sort of um, watching a lot of video nasties in the 80s. And I remember saving up enough pocket money to hire a video camera, I believe, and remember started sort of filming my mates on the estate and at the time, you know, pretending, okay, you pretend you're Godfather, I pretend I'm Don Don the Charlie, or I'll, I'll pretend I'm this character, that character, and we would just have a laugh and I'd sort of film people and sort of play it back and kind of think, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then... Um, I suppose I got kind of interested in, in sort of watching, yeah, a lot of video nasties in the 80s with a video shop down the road. And I would save enough money to hire two video players and I'd copy the films and then I'd take them to school and have a little black book and hire them out and go, right, it's 20p that Peter owes me, 25p Stephen owes me, whatever. And I remember sort of looking at all of those films uh, back then which kind of made me think about, in an unconscious way, sort of acting, but never wanted to be a performer or anything like that. It was just that it was lodged in my background when I was at school, the whole sort of American Hollywood film kind of area. But as time went on, left school and uh, didn't pass with any uh, exams or anything. And uh, someone told me to go along to um, college, which I did, which I really enjoyed um, and stayed at college for a couple of years. Again, just finding it amazing that you can kind of go along to a place. And it was very sociable. You, no one was telling you to go to lessons. And I spent a lot of time in the students' union, putting on uh, dances and raves and trips here and there. But the backdrop to all of this was that... Um, I suppose being a sort of 15, 16 year old in Brixton, there was a constant um, terror on the streets by being stopped and searched and roughed up by the police. And a lot of my friends at the time, they were, I suppose, either, you know, ended up going to prison, on drugs, being stitched up by the police. Um, and I found sort of 
wanting to kind of find something a little bit different to do other than the, the sort of mainstream, which is what most of my friends were doing, either working on building sites and stuff like that. And I remember leaving college at the end of two years and my girlfriend at the time said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I got no idea. I can't go back to college because that would just be another year of not, well, wasted academic year, even though I did enjoy myself and made loads of contacts. I thought the one thing I did like at college, even though I never went to the lessons a lot, don't know why, but it was accountancy. Maybe it was holding a calculator. <laughs> I decided, right, um, back then you could walk into a job centre and pick up a card off the wall and go, right, this is the job that I want to go for. And essentially I blagged my way into an uh, interview in Chancery Lane uptown for a job as a trainee accountant. And they asked me if I had done any studying. I said, yeah, I'm waiting for my exams and whatever. Anyway, they liked, liked me at the interview. They told me to come back on Monday and start. And I stayed at that job for about six years um, till about 21. And uh, at the end of it, I thought, oh, you know, I'm in just such an amazing place as a 21-year-old going to to work in a nice suit, in a nice office, you know, had cars, going on holiday. Thing, everything seemed to be kind of okay with me personally, but all around me there was still this kind of tribulation, suffering of people getting stitched up, drugs, people dying, mental health at the time, which I didn't know was happening to lots of, of, of my friends and family. And I thought, oh, well, I, I'm a bit more older now maybe I can go back and study something and get some kind of a qualification and um, I thought well I don't want to do anything too taxing after work and I thought oh, I'll go off and do something like art or you know painting or something and there wasn't when I went to the college there was nothing available all the classes were full but the woman said oh we've got drama and I went drama oh no 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 and it just reminded me of being at school in English and we'd read sometimes some Shakespeare, which I knew back then. I didn't know back then, but which I know now was Shakespeare. And we had a really horrible teacher who, gosh, he, he used to force us to read, the whole class to read Shakespeare, but particularly the, 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 the Caribbean boys or boys from Africa. He would lob these big, huge bunch of keys at us, which would hit up in our chest when we couldn't pronounce the words properly. From reading the book and that kind of put me off when I heard the woman say oh we've got drama if you want to come and do that that so it reminded me of what I thought drama would be reading this Shakespeare and plus I didn't relate to Shakespeare because you know it was a white guy he wore tights spoke differently and I just kind of thought that's way off for me and so when I was offered this kind of opportunity to do drama I kind of said no 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 it's all right she said, no, no, come on you'll find it It'd be fine. It'd be, you'll find it fun. So I did join the class and I liked it and it was great. And, you know, I, I don't remember what I actually did, but I remember doing a lot, a lot of laughing. I think I was the only guy in the class. Anyway, she said to me, look, oh, you're really, really funny. Why don't you go down to the youth theatre? And I went, oh, okay. Uh, she said, what was that then? She said, oh, Oval House. That's by you. Isn't, you know, you live down the road. I said, yeah, I do. And then there's all this dread came over me of going to Oval House. I could see myself sort of going there. And they would remember me because, you know, well, a few years ago, um, I think I broke into Oval House and stole a cassette recorder, you know, teenager, nothing to do over the holidays. And I thought, well, if I go there, they're going to remember me. Anyway, I went down there. They didn't, didn't even say anything. And I started doing youth theatre. And a long story short, did a play over the summer holidays. That was great. Then I was told to go to the Young Vic. Went there, did the same thing, did a short play with the youth theatre, then um, Royal Court, Albany. And I just kind of thought, yeah, this is, this is really cool. I like this acting lark. And um, I thought I'd better get my equity card. Because uh, that's what I was told by the people around me at the time. And I, me and my friend wrote a children's play and we put it on over the summer and we did all these gigs and wrote it, sent it off to equity and got our equity cards. And I've never used my card ever since I've had it or been asked for it. Um, and I kind of thought, yeah, this would this could be the, the world that I really want to go into. And at the time I was sort of 
still doing this accountancy thing, but I really gave that up because I really wanted to become this performer actor. And it reminded me of, yeah, all of those films that I watched when I was at school. And um, at the time I had lots of friends who were sort of working in children's homes and hospitals and prisons. And they were sort of noticing me being infected by this performance acting kind of lark. And they said, no, you're into that drama stuff. Why don't you come and do drama here with some of my kids? And I was like, what? Yeah, you're joking, isn't you? I'm a professional actor. You would never find me dead in those places. My, my name is in lights. I want this. I want that. <laughs> and I remember sort of, you know, thinking that I had the, the, the balls to be this amazing actor. And to be honest, the truth was, I was just excited, but never had the experience of any actor training. It was really just going along and meeting these professionals who were putting on plays and enjoying them and then thinking I could act. And I never really knew what it was all about. And then really I decided to go to the City Lit, study some acting classes, Utah Hagen. And, you know, um, that really sort of made me explore improvisation and stuff. And then at the time, I remember these friends sort of saying, look, Tony, man, you've got this talent. Why don't you come and sort of work with me at the youth club or what? And I was like, no, it's not really my kind of thing. You know, I want to be a professional actor. And uh, I remember going to the Actors Centre in Cheney Street, opposite Good Street when it was there. I think it's moved now, or I don't know if it's still around. And sort of going along to lots of these um, acting classes where professionals would just run their acting classes. And I just thought, right, I've got something. Why don't I kind of find a way to use it. And I went back to some of these places that friends had invited me to come and work. And I went in there and sort of realized what I was doing was a complete mess and nothing worked in terms of engaging or getting people to participate because I, I think I went in there and sort of said, right, stand still and hold the script and breathe and all of these kind of regimental ways of what I understood what acting was. And nothing worked at all. And I left sort of feeling quite disappointed in that kind of way of being offered work as like, well, if I'm an actor, why is it not working? Why am I not getting these people to act? How can I, you know, I didn't really understand why it wasn't working. And so I was still sort of traveling around, you know, meeting people, doing workshops everywhere because I just loved you know, this whole sense of being a performer. And so I did a lot of different things, circus skills, Shakespeare, singing, um, voice work, clowning, you name it. I was just up for it because I realised I couldn't go to drama school. Um, I had to earn money uh, to pay the rent. So it was about how do I do that? And it was always a, this appetite and, you know, sort of feast on where can I go and learn something creative. And a friend of mine said to me, oh, this director's in town. Why don't you go and do some work with him? And I didn't know who he was at the time. So I spent a whole week with Augusto Boal and we put on a play at the end of the five days. And it blew my mind, to be honest, because it been really different compared to all the other workshops I'd done up to that point where it was about sort of making theatre with everyday people. And things started to kind of click for me personally because I could kind of relate to the suffering and the tribulation that my friends were going through and how I could kind of use, you know, drama to look at their own concerns that they had, the things that were important to them in their lives. And when I went back to some of these places that I was being invited to, the prisons, the hospitals, things started to work. Things really started to open up. I was able to kind of really engage with their people with this training that I had learned from Boal. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. I like this. So the kind of acting sort of went down and sort of disappeared in over the hill, whereas the kind of making theatre and, you know, just creating drama scenes and sketches kind of really decided, yeah, I felt really excited by that. So I then went off and found out where Boal was and wherever he was around the world in Brazil or America or Europe, I'd go off and learn and study with him. I also went off and did a lot of stuff with Keith Johnston when he moved to Canada. 
and lots of other practitioners around the world. And that was really my training. And so I brought all of that back to, I suppose, the community that I'm still working in very much today. It felt like I would was able to come back to my community and engage with people and get them to tell their stories through performance and through theatre. And that has kept me going pretty much. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that very reflective insight into your journey and and your career trajectory. Um, What would you say it was about Bowal and John Stone's approaches or practice that triggered that feeling of fulfillment within you, do you think? I think within the sort of being a performer kind of world, I remember sort of, um, you know, getting the stage every week or going to the Actor Centre or going to City Lit and City Lit and looking up on those boards and seeing, you know, what was available for actors and come and join this play and this troupe and that director doing a workshop. And I remember sort of getting lots of, yeah, fringe theatre uh, auditions at the time. And often um, I'd find myself you know, getting either, you know, the near lead or the lead part. And when it came to doing the sort of um, plays that required me to take the lead part, I think there was a problem there because what I noticed was that I was being offered these lead parts and then I was asked to learn all of these lines and spit them out three weeks later on stage when I never really understood the English not having the, not that you need to be academic, but not knowing a little bit about the language and, you know, just sort of understanding English in the text form and having to articulate that in rehearsals and the pressure of learning these lines, that really started to trouble me. And it got really serious for me because I remember just sort of really thinking, getting really stressed, really angry, really upset with myself of not being able to, cope and manage with the feelings that I had around learning these lines and then telling the director of the company I can't do the play and they're like why why what's the matter and I was like oh I'd make up some excuse oh oh, I'm not feeling very well you know or my brother's not very well some excuse that I made up and really I think at the boil of the, the heart of it was that I wasn't able to kind of learn these lines in the way that they wanted me to do them particularly in that short period of like you know, you've got all of this big script and we're going to start these, uh, start the performance in three weeks' time. That just terrified the lights out of me. So when I kind of met Powell and Johnston, there was none of that pressure. It was just like an open playing field. And whatever I brought, that was my performance. And I kind of realised that that was more the kind of work that I wanted to do. I was more able, more freer, more open. I felt much more creative and certainly less stressed and pressured working within that that realm without a script. And so that's kind of why I kind of let go of the actor kind of way of being and wanted to be and more into the sort of devised theatre kind of world, really. One of the reasons that I was so excited to speak with you was in relation to your interest in facilitation and facilitator training. So I saw your advertisement for one of your groups, one of your seminars on um, facilitator training, specifically for working with difficult or hard to engage groups. And that got me thinking, like, how did you start as a facilitator and how did you begin to piece together what skills you should use or were using to kind of make or to facilitate? Yeah, thank you. That's a really great question. I think when I went back to my community to work that's when I realized in a way doing facilitation is the easiest thing on the planet but the most hardest thing to do to get it kind of okay not so much right but get it okay and I think for me it was more around um working with like you say everyday people and it was just the ability to feel confident to know that, yeah, how do you turn a group game into theatre? How do you go from like discussing 
playing a group game, a drama game, having a discussion about it, and then transitioning that, making that smooth transition into theatre. Those were the skills that I was kind of around when I was going to the workshops. And I didn't realise that until I put that into practice. So one of the um, major influences that enabled me to do that was, um, I remember sort of work, love, probably know them, Geese Theatre. Uh, and I, I really adored their work because a lot of their practitioners who'd worked for them, a lot of them were freelance and I was obviously working with them or going to a lot of their workshops. So the style of facilitation that they carried and conducted and upheld, for me, felt like it was like the Premier League, high class, really sophisticated, but so simple kind of way of working with groups. And that training that I did with them, even though, again, I got offered to come and work with these, but I didn't want to give up three years of living in London to move to Birmingham and learn all this and make this amazing work. But I kind of hanged out on the fringes for like eight, eight, nine years working with different practitioners who were associated to geese, learning this technique of facilitation skills. And then you, obviously you have to go back to your own communities and trying it out. And so for me, it felt very easy once I'd known what, I was doing in terms of like listening to people about their concerns and their passions and their problems. And then sort of just at the very least saying, well, show me what that looks like. You know, what does that look like in a little sketch? And often they would present that back. And then it was, it was really from that sort of presentation that they did that little sketch showing, I was able to kind of, you know, open up a world of perspectives from different character points of view for that person. And so it enabled me, I suppose, to, yeah, find ways to simply just use drama in its, in its really simplest way for people to kind of go, well, how are you going to manage and cope with the same situation that you've just presented with us here? And because you've got the, the individual who's experienced that, and then you've got the rest of the group members audience-wise, they're willing, more than willing, to share, shout, share their views and opinions on how that could be solved. And that was the kind of essential way that I started to facilitate sessions, you know, in that kind of forum way, which to me, you know, when I look back at it, I think it's one of the most powerful, powerfulest ways to simply start something in a, in a room by setting up some kind of provocation, some kind of problem. And then, you know, having people sort of engage and participate with it. That's how it started for me. Um, and I realized that there were certain skills and attitudes that I was kind of bringing from different facilitators. And I remember at a point going, who am I? What, what, what am I? What's the main root of, of a facilitation style am I drawing on? Because there were so many people that I was kind of hovering around. And you know, sometimes when you kind of borrow a little bit of a style from this person, you borrow a little bit of a style, but you have to make it your own. And I had a real problem with that after a few years, sort of thinking about facilitation. But my own style came out um, eventually, and it's never left me since which is this kind of playful, cheeky, you know, kind of way of um, presenting myself and inviting people to come and play. Um, it's just something that I constantly kind of feel that I'm, you know, I'm, I am grateful because for me, looking back at all those years, going off to see these other practitioners that I had admired and they were running workshops. So I'd travel wherever it was in the UK, they were doing a workshop. Even if it was just for a day, I'd go along and just be in that space with them. I remember sort of following John Wright around for a good couple of years, you know, wherever he was in Europe, doing his work with clowning and improvisation and learning so much from these people and taking that those skills and bringing them back into the communities that I was working with and getting them to um, share their concerns through this world of uh, play that I was inviting. 
what would you list as some of the things that new or existing facilitators struggle with the most that they share with you on these on these training days well often when i do the um uh course beyond resistance that really for me uh was created because i realized at the same time going back to sort of 2003 2004 as a drama practitioner going into lots of those youth clubs crews prisons and, you know, sort of saying, hi, I'm Tony, I'm here to do a drama workshop. Fuck off, I don't want to do this shit. How do you stand up against that terrain? And it was really when I realised that's the battle that I'm in. I call it a battle because sometimes it feels like I'm in a trench and I've got to somehow find a way to engage these participants who are so different from me in one way. They're, you know, obviously in this institution and it's like, you know, me coming in to really genuinely invite them to kind of do something which they're kind of thinking, what? What, you want me to hold that fuck off? And so I kind of go, oh, shit, here I go again. All right, let's not all hold hands. Okay, we're not going to hold hands today. We're going to do a different activity. We're going to play the newspaper race. I want to see how many of you guys can get across the room to the other you know, in a certain amount of time, holding these two bits of paper with your team members. Okay, in two teams, off you go. And during a game like something like that, what I'm seeing afterwards or during the game is some of those guys who categorically didn't want to touch, hold hands, and come on, I've got you. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and you, yeah, I've got you over. Don't worry. And they're all being all physical. And I'm laughing there. and. You know, afterwards, I'm going, oh, such an amazing work, guys. Yes, look, you, you, you did so well. But I thought you said to me, you know, you're not into touching and holding. And and they're looking at me and they're kind of going, you're smart. Okay, yes, I get it. All right. We are, we are, you know, we are. Yeah, lads, we're all holding hands. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and so for me, I think one of the things that I've often found within this whole facilitation thing is really your own resistance to certain games that I feel I don't want to walk in the room with I don't want to play without even knowing anything about the group when I read about certain games I look at them and go "Mm, why don't I like this game what is it about this game that I don't like and if I don't like it I certainly ain't gonna play it and so I'm trying to learn much more about myself as a practitioner, a facilitator. What's the resistance in me? Is it because, oh, it's a memory game and I'm shit at memory, so I am definitely not going to play a memory game with a group because if I fuck up, it's even worse for me. So that sort of, you know, goes out the window. And I want to kind of realise, I want to find out from a lot of the practitioners I'm working with, you know, where, where you at? And a lot of them often say is that they are really petrified when they meet a group. And I said, well, yeah, everybody meets. Everyone has this kind of, you know, stress, you know, feels really nervous, anxious. But it's about somehow you've got to kind of bring out that performer side of you. Somehow you've got to bring out this little tiny person who wants to perform in front of this group you know, to make them kind of feel more relaxed and more to make them feel like a bit of a, that they're in charge and you're just here to kind of facilitate that. That's the, I find that's the performer archetype that wants to kind of come out and be a prat, be a stupid, whatever it is in front of them to make them feel like, yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe there is a bit of a chance. But often I think for me, one of the major things that have helped me is yeah, learning a little bit about your group, that can be dividends either side, positive or negative. Someone can tell you so much about them. You're like, why do I need all this information? You know, and sometimes there's been times when I have to have had that information. But often it's like, well, you only just need to know a little bit about the group and the context. For me, it's more about what's the room I'm going to be in. If that room got those fucking swivel chairs that the young people are going to be you know, on and playing around because that's going to take away the focus and, you know, straight away. So I've got to crawl them back. What else is in the space that's going to take away the focus of me being in that, that room with them? You know, what's the, whether the group know each other or not, whether they have done any drama before, 
you know, mainly the thing I find is people struggle with when I'm a facilitator, I'm coming in, to what extent do I kind of challenge the group with, you know, right, you know, you're misbehaving, you know, is it one strike and you're out? What what are the rules that govern this place already? What do they already do here? So I often get behind those rules. And when they don't work, because I've employed them in my session, I can go back to that person and go, well, look, I've said this, done that, in, you know, inform this person of this, but no one's listening. And it enables us to then, me and this person, to have this deeper conversation about how we might work further on, knowing that your rules are not really working with this group. So can I share and have a conversation and deepen our relationship with this person in order to bring out some new ways to work with this group because we all know we're just parachuting in we're not there forever but what we want to do is perhaps leave behind something that that person who's in charge might go well actually yeah maybe there is a way of working with this group in a different kind of way as opposed to the traditional kind of rules that govern this place so for me, often it's like um, working with facilitators. It's always a fear. Fear is the number one thing. But that's what we need. We need that adrenaline fear. We need to feel like we're a bit nervous, don't know what to say, don't know what to do in any given moment. And when things are really cooking and you feel really like smart, you know, you've got a bit of a chip on your shoulder, you feel like, yeah, you've done all that amazing work. Put yourself in a, the opposite position of like, oh, my gosh. Uh, well, what you think is happening isn't really happening. What else can I do? And and it may be just be nothing, but you put your, you provoke yourself to say, what else can I do that might facilitate something else in this room? I think the, the, the courses that I've run, particularly the facilitation one, it's really about giving people an opportunity to grapple with the effort of, uh, uh, of resistance in in a kind of conflict way. Because often I say, you know, when I'm out there in a, in a territory working with young people, adults or older people, and I meet this resistance, not only myself, but with the group, for whatever reason, one person's on their phone, this other one's bullying, this other one's chatting, this other, you know, it's a whole kind of herding cats kind of situation. What is it that you can bring to that space that's going to bring a moment of difference that, you can't get everybody, but it's about over time, you might be able to kind of, you know, work with everybody in that room to, positively and negatively. And I think what I find with the, the course that people have often said is that for them to physicalize the resistance that they meet in the room, and that's by just, you know, holding arms or palm to palm and pushing pressure on each other, you're really getting a sense of what that person's trying to communicate with you, you know, and what does that translate when we're doing it in the training room physically? What does that translate to the resistance that you might in the meeting the room? And it's trying to make those correlations between the facilitator experiencing that resistance in the room, what they're, that they're facilitating, but also what they're learning in the, on the training course by physicalizing this resistance and getting them to come up with their own sense of, ah, this is what it, what it equates to me when I'm running my sessions. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's a training course that I find is really, really simple in its way. It's like spends a couple of hours physicalizing what resistance is. Like I say, you know, people being a dead weight in a space and you've got to drag them, you've got to move them, you've got to tell them that you want to take them from here to there. Because sometimes a lot of this work is acting. And you're like, as a fucking facilitator, going, oh, man. you know, that young person's just really got to me. And, and they do sometimes. So you've got to find that you are able to shift and change gear, change tactic, even if it means lead them, come back to them in a moment or two or the next session or after the break. You've got to find these ways to kind of keep on constantly engaging the people that are in the space. It's a tough world, but we love it. And it makes us want to kind of, come back next time and have a different approach. You know, it's a bit like a, it's a bit like an improvisation. It's always the same, but it's different. And you have to be, right? You have yeah. to be, because 
if not then you very quickly become unresponsive and I think some of those really vital opportunities for developing trust and cohesion amongst participants they that slowly starts to evaporate and then suddenly you're scratching your head kind of going well why aren't they buying into what I'm offering and it's because you're offering just a service you're not actually offering an experience and a relationship and an opportunity to to share and be creative communally which is is so integral to the work that we do I was wondering what groups are you currently working with so at the moment, uh, yeah, so at the moment I'm working with a group of um, young people um, on an estate where we're just sort of using drama to look at everyday problems. So that's just, that's like a bit like a youth club kind of setting. Um, and that's really fun and really creative. Um, and is about 12 young people aged, I'd say about 13 to about 18 in that group and we do a lot of games um and we kind of present their sketches back to their um peers i suppose they like doing that um and that's really fun and that's like once a week that's been going on for a couple of years now um different yeah do that as a voluntary kind of thing um and that's like, it's like a youth club setting. Um, and it's, you know, back on the estate where I used to live. So I do, I do love that. And it, and it, I think it's my only way in to kind of keep up with young people and the terminology and the things that they talk about. And that's why I, I think I kind of hold on to it. Um, I've got two boys, one's 18, one's 28. And uh, because these, this group is much younger, it, you know, I feel very young myself. <laughs> must say and it makes me kind of you know feel that I can still be able to kind of work with young per a young person or a group of young people even though I'm nearly you know two years till I'm 60 it feels like I can still kind of understand what they are talking about and to extract some of that information and make drama out of it that's what is the key I find um is to kind of use information and detail that they are concerned they're worried about they're talking about in the break and can we come back in the room and make a scene out of that because then they're like lit up like a christmas tree you know because they all got something to say they all want to participate in it because it's what they understand it's what they know this is the kind of territory and language so it's young people and then i've got a group of older men that we do um a lot of mental health and suicide kind of uh, work. And again, that's been going on since 2018. That's a weekly group where we sort of work for around 16 weeks, 18 weeks, and we put on a piece at the end. Uh, and we tend to do more legislative theatre kind of with that, um, you know, trying to get the stakeholders and policy changers and panel people involved to come up with new ways, which is, really tough work but that's where we're at with that and it's a great group because user-led 18 to 71 is the age range there's about 25 of them that come up every week and you know some of them are some of them have a notion of what performing is or they've done a little bit of performing when they were younger but none of them are sort of professional actors or anything um and it's a whole range of men that i suppose yeah are, to one at one end of the scale are experiencing you know stress anxiousness worried about relationships work or other issues and the other end is like people who are suicidal ideation you know really worried about the future um not wanting to be themselves feel like they can't be themselves when they come to the group and they hear other men talk about themselves in the way that they've experienced themselves and what i mean by that is someone might say oh i'm really worried i've got you know prostate cancer or whatever and four other guys will say well i've had that and or i'm going through that and instantly that sort of helping that person who's raised that issue feel more at ease because there's a kind of wealth of experience in in the space 
And for me to be in that space with these men, hear these stories, hear them talk, see them being emotionally held, you know, hear them sort of say, oh my God, I've been to so many other groups, but this is the only group where I feel like I can really be myself. This is a place of, you know, value that's got to find a way to kind of keep going. And as we know, you know, things being cut, services not on. I'm just so lucky that this mental health data that I'm running it from has been running for a very long time and there's no sign of them closing. So that place is, that project will still happen. So I'm doing that at the moment uh, with that group. Um, and then um, there's a Windrush group that I'm working with. We make performances around some of the sort of injustices around the uh, whole immigration and kind of thing that's happened to a lot of them. Um, and we perform little sketches and scenes back to the home office from time to time to, yeah, get the home office, home office people to consider rethinking about some of the recommendations that have come out through this report and they follow through with some of these recommendations because essentially when they asked to do the uh, the report the home office commissioned some people to do the report the report was done and there was like 30 odd recommendations and only two of them have been implemented since 2018 so i'm kind of working creating those kind of forum scenes on all of the other recommendations to bring them in the space, make them physical in the space so the Home Office can see the problems that these people are experiencing and realising through the forum that, you know, it's a very difficult challenge in order to solve this problem. So can the Home Office kind of go, oh, fucking hell, we need to really put that recommendation in when we go back to the ranch, that kind of work. Well, firstly, I want to say that I have a huge amount of admiration for the information that you've just shared and for you personally, because I think the the frontline work is the most difficult, I think, to sustain because you have to be you have to be there and you have to be regular and you have to be reliable. And as life moves, you know, some things have to change and you can't always take on projects that you want to, but to be that consistent figure that sticks within a community and is the person that is reliable for offering such a, a wonderful service takes real commitment and is evidently just evidences your love for the work that you do so I, I have a massive a massive amount of admiration for that thank you for sharing that with me do you you said that working with the young people you find that a way as to also stay relevant and stay current and understand the language um, of the the new generation. Do you see any parallels between the issues that the younger generation are facing and your childhood? Absolutely, I see that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes me want to kind of continue this work specifically with that group because I see their I see their stories I see their struggles I understand it you know um, it's something that we all share in common and so to make drama out of it which I thought God if I had someone doing that back then when I was going to youth clubs that would just be so amazing and so yeah to see them kind of connect and relate and identify all of these issues that I've gone through back then, which is still around for them to this very day, you know, and that's the beauty of having that sort of intergenerational way of sort of working that, you know, I can say, look, you're 13, you're 15, you're 18. Here's somebody who's 25. Here's someone who's 35. Here's someone who's 45 and 50 and 60. They're still experiencing what you're experiencing in this young full age here. What is it that we can do that will circumvent for the next 20 years? Because these problems ain't going away. You know, the, the way that the police are going to behave and the way that you're going to find yourself out on road, no matter what skills, qualifications you've got, whatever suit you're wearing, you're still going to get troubled, you know, in the workplace, in at home. You know, what is it that you can do to, you know, find alternatives so that 
protection, a way to kind of be in a place that you can kind of recoup, recover, or get away from the, the madness that you so-called talk about. What is it that you can do? And having that group who you similar, have got similar experiences, just again, listening to what they say about this collective energy of the group, it's just a lifeline for a lot of them. And it's something that I never had um, in that way, in that creative way when I was younger. But to see this, you know, come alive and to see them feeling empowered and motivated um, and obviously soaking up a lot of the creativity that I'm sharing with them in terms of, you know, ever thought about being a drama facilitator? Uh, I remember walking into, um, uh, um, gosh, uh, some secure units back in the day when we used to do a lot of prison work. Um, and I've got a big, big um, um, mentor. You probably know him very well, Saul Hewish. Saul Hewish was the director of um, uh, Geese Theatre back in the sort of mid-80s, but he runs a company now uh, called Ride Out, they're based in Stoke. And he used to run it with a guy called Chris Johnston, who unfortunately died in 2016. Um, and Saul uh, does a lot of work at um, Warwick University and does a lot of applied theatre there. But he was one of the guys that I was following um, back in back in the day to cut, you know, to learn, learn my, my, my teeth through all of this drama stuff. And I used to do a lot of uh, sort of work in secure units in different prisons up and down the country. And often, you know, when you sort of engage the group in, in an institution and, you know, they seem to kind of be humble with the work or appreciative of the work, it's really funny kind of sometimes funny questions coming out from the group. And I remember one day working with this group and, they were just a group of guys on this kind of wing that um, were isolated from others because of their drug and alcohol issues. Um, and we did this sort of morning workshop. And the first morning, the guy, one guy said to me, oh, this is really great stuff. I really like this. This is really fun. And then he said to me, so what do you do in your day job? And I just started <laughs> laughing. And it just reminded me of like, well, People don't assume that people assume that this is just something that people don't do. But it 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 made me think about okay, well, yeah, this is my job. This is what I want to do. This isn't kind of you know you can't get this skill from you know learning in a textbook. You've just got to be out in the trenches. You've got to be out in the communities, meeting the people, and and making the most amount of mistakes in order to kind of find your way it's just it's so difficult um and just a couple of stories that i'd love to share about mistakes but i'll keep them very short one was working with a group of adults who were sort of three years both three years clean from crack cocaine and they wanted to make a film and a play about their experiences and i was working with a group of other artists it was about four of us and they was this group of, of adults were surrounded by counsellors and therapists who were supporting them through their sort of journey. And they were really excited to make a uh, make this uh, play and a film with us over the six weeks. I got so excited in the rehearsals with this group to the extent that I kind of drew upon, yeah, come on, you know, the sort of great director working with a sort of method actor who's really absorbing all of their work and really enjoying their work. I'm like, come on, this is great. You're doing really great. And they were like reenacting, you know, taking crack and silver foil and paraphernalia. And they were enjoying it. I was enjoying it. And it was just a great relationship of, you know, in that moment of working and rehearsing. But, you know, what I realized, what we all realized just like, of days after that process into the, that, those sessions two of the people relapsed because in the evening they just got so triggered by what they'd gone through during the day they'd reached out to certain partners in the night but two of them relapsed after being clean for three years and it made me kind of think what the fuck am i doing who the hell am i you know doing this work with people that 
has got these real issues and I'm coming in and I'm telling them to, yeah, get into it, that's it. Yeah, you're doing it great. Yeah, brilliant. Which is what a good coach would do. But when you realise the power of the work that we do and how it can have impact with people, um, it made me just down tools for at least about six weeks and it wasn't for other facilitators saying Tony look don't worry it wasn't your fault you know this these things happen or you know many a times I've done performances in jails where you know the group have worked really hard all for a whole five days of putting on performance on the Friday morning it's been really problematic for them to get from point A to point B you know they've got to go and do this show in front of their peers some don't make it some have really you know had a really bad time um, harm themselves on the day of the, the, day of the performance because they can't handle the emotions that they got to go and confront. Or even after the performance, when everyone comes up and says, oh, yeah, well done, brilliant. You know, a lot of them, because we're not there. You know, we're, we're, we're long gone. You know, they've got to kind of learn to cope and manage all of those feelings. And so they've sometimes self-harmed, abused themselves, you know, done terrible things to themselves because the the wealth of love that they felt from everybody in that community has been something that they're not used to. And it's just made them trigger and go off the rails. And I kind of think if I'm going in to do that to somebody, yeah, it makes you question. It makes you question your work. I would really love to get your opinion on how how our how our field of work can sometimes produce and fund projects and opportunities for communities that can sometimes be more exploitative than yep. actually beneficial do you or have you noticed that there is an increase in very surface level branded Absolutely. applied practice taking place and and what do you think what do you think some of the dangers are of that right by literally showcasing a problem as opposed to exploring a problem or providing knowledge and education as to why particular problems may exist what are your thoughts on that have you noticed that no i do you're absolutely right i do see that and i think as you know, me, my, the way I am right now in, in, in the work that I do, everything that I try to do is very much I pick and choose in this day and age. But I look all around me about what is happening. And there are facilitators that I know who are doing the sort of programmed work. And if I, if I knew a lot of this experience, you know, back then, it would be to sort of say, well, actually, I don't know if we should be doing this kind of work with these communities, you know, because of what they put on often is a lot of harm. Because if it's not addressing the root problem, then exactly, what are we doing? We're coming in and we are just putting a plaster over. And, and I don't want to do that in my community. Why? Because I'm still here. You know, I'm still going to be around tomorrow. You're going to, you know, pass me in the street. You know, I'm going to still see you. So anything I do nowadays has to be done in a way that I feel has got to be credible, meaningful. You know, it's it, it, there isn't this sense of, yes, because I know, you know, funding's terrible. We don't get enough, enough funding to do the projects that we really want to do. But it's got to be meaningful. Otherwise, I don't want to touch it. But you're right. I think there was a lot of work that is going on. And you just got to think about education and then when I hear students talk about how they're being educated um you know without the roots of the work being touched upon they have to quickly you know provide this provide that but not not covering the real roots of any of the the, the social problems that have emerged and where this stuff comes from if you're not tackling that then um I think we are doing more more harm than good definitely and I think one of the ways that I've challenged myself about that is to what extent am I going to have that conversation with the person who's bringing me in to do this work? You, you know, you've, okay, you've amazingly got whatever this funding is to do this piece of work, but where in it can 
the group really come up with their own, you know, curriculum? Where can they kind of bring out the issues that they want to explore within the piece? Surely they've got that's got to be the starting point. Because if it if you say that you've consulted the group and you know done this research and co-production and all these fancy words, and yet still you want to do this piece of work, and you're bringing in me to kind of make you look good. Yeah, at nearly 60, two years away from 60, I can afford to kind of challenge these people and say, no, I ain't touching that. And it is, you're really right. I think there is a lot of work that's happening in our communities. I see all the time that is doing more harm than good. But that's the current trajectory of how, in a way, arts sometimes is being used in our communities. You know, when you think about the issue of police, you know, there are so many groups, so many um, groups that have had this experience of working with the police. And so when a new thing comes around, I've never seen people kind of go, well, we need to kind of look back over the last 10, 15, 20 years of all the groups that have previously done work or had some experience or implemented this or that first before we then go off and try to look into this area we've got to look at what's gone before and often no one's interested no one's interested in the past it's always about what's happening now you know and yeah I think we've got to as it's our job as practitioners creatives to kind of challenge that way that people want to make work or they think that work should be done with a specific group and often I find it's very shallow because and, and dangerous dangerous absolutely i think back in the day there was a lot more time and money and investment around for that kind of work but nowadays it's not there a previous guest that i had on the podcast adrian gardner who is the producer for the hammersmith he shared with me a really cool approach is that he um, works with a group they decide on a stimulus or he provides a stimulus either or but then he goes away and he then begins to not only research, but also to dig out and pick, provide literature and further reading and further kind of context to the things that they're exploring. Um, and I found that like really admirable and inspiring, right? Like you're, you're providing further learning and taking it to a rehearsal room and offering that to participants to then either join in with or not it's completely up to them but I, I thought that was a really really cool um, way of working and a really great way to provide access to empowerment in a way like and it's interesting to the fact that when we're getting brought in to kind of work on something I think we have to question as much of well how did this come about you know what consultation where is the evidence show us you know that, that there is this kind of roots of this work where's been where is that and sometimes if if we're not coming in with that kind of mindset we are going to bring in other creatives who have a different mindset and there's nothing wrong with that but if their mindset is not set on certain things that, that they don't realize they are going to make things worse but you know there's many of us out there who would take up those jobs when we're not doing those jobs and you know again it's yeah, our experience, our knowledge that we'll, when we're bringing into those spaces, question the work that is about to be done. But there are other people who, just like us, who, you know, when we first started, not really, you know, conscious about those other aspects and just want to do the job because we want some experience. We want to be there in that space with that group to kind of go, yeah, I've done this bit of work. I've started working with this group. Um, it is a difficult, difficult one, but... I think that's the current situation that I find the way that funding is, you know, the way that arts is being delivered in communities. It, there, there isn't, often I don't hear people saying, oh, well, look, if you look back at the last 20 years of such and such or someone who's done this work or there was a group that were here before you and these are the issues, none of that. It's always like a new slate, new thing, new project, new idea, new group, new... But the same old shit. Yeah, yeah. Do you? So do you have any work coming up? What have you got on the books? Uh, yeah, so I've got um, my men's group. They've got their performance at uh, Mental Health, during Mental Health Awareness Week in May. So they're the, they're, 
they've got two shows coming up, which we're looking forward to. Um, the young people will probably do their performance at the end of June, when in terms of when education school breaks up. Um, but the but the men's group date, I can send you the links to that because that's live. And then I'm sort of cooking up another performance later on down in the year in November for Men's Day, International Men's Day, at City Hall with the mayor. Um, again, trying to sort of lean more into legislative theatre kind of practice. Because I think it's funny because when I look back now, I think I just... You know, nothing's before its time, but you start off in this in this journey and I just love drama and I still love drama and I still love playing games. But partly, you know, that spectrum is, oh, it's great when you hear, how did you get Johnny to stay in the room for two hours? He's never been in the space. Blah, 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 blah. When you hear those kind of conversations, you think, yeah, I'm doing the right job. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you know that there are these systemic issues that are not going away and what is it that I'm doing that is being a contribution to the removal of them and either we got to be in the system and chipping away at it or we got to be on the outside chipping away and we need everyone from all angles working on it but it makes me kind of realize that certainly at this stage of my game yeah, if it's not about changing rules, policies, amending policies, amending some existing law that's not working, if it's not about getting policy people to see what they're doing with people in communities, if I'm not involved in that work, not to say that nothing else isn't worthwhile, but that's where the work really is for me. It's about trying to work against power. And I just wish... I suppose I kind of would have come across this kind of angle a lot more. Maybe it's always been there, but my haven't my focus hasn't been there. Um, I'm not saying that all the other amazing work isn't worthwhile. You know, the clowning, the 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 the, the, the improvisations that you do with groups that just bring out, you know, individual personal change. Yeah, that's that's what we still need to be focusing on. But at the same time, keeping an eye on that political systemic issues that are that are kind of surrounding us. And what are we doing for our work that might help us lean into that more? And we've got to look at who else is doing this work and lean into them and try to find ways to collaborate and be part of that. So for me, at this sort of stage of my practice, I'm very much in tuned with the kind of, um, yeah, how do I change? How do I change policy? How do I change the, the way that this institution works with this group? Is there a way that we can change things for them? Even though I'm not going to be around, but if there's a change made within the institution that these people want, that's the kind of work I want to be involved in. And it's not always easy. It's not always going to be the one that I can get that kind of gig. Um, there'll be other gigs where people are saying, oh, just come and, you know, work with a group of people. We'll pay you loads of money and you don't have to worry about anything. I've got to decide, you know, as a practitioner, where do my loyalties lie? You know, it's, it's, and as, as time goes on, funding is just such a bloody minefield. You've either got to be the freelancer who's got their own company drawing down funds or you're out there running with all sorts of people and creating work, collaborating with those other partners, making the work. But I want to be by making it, doing that fucking research from the beginning so that when you do parachute into those projects, you're not just coming in at the cherry on the top, you know, sort of way of working, which is often what we do in communities. People just parachute in and parachute out. But like I said, I'm left still walking up and down in the same community, seeing the same old people. So I've got to hold my head up at the end of the day to know that what I've done so far has been meaningful of value that that still needs to be done and people can kind of respect, yeah, oh, if anything that Tony's doing, I want to be part of it because I know it's going to be impactful. Mm. 
Uh, well, you've certainly made an impact on my morning. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, Tony, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to just sit and talk with you and listen and learn. Thank you so much. I will include all of your links um, and profiles in the description for this episode. So thank you. Um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. I hope to um, I hope to see you. I hope to see you again in the future. Thank you. Well, Tom, it's been great talking to you. I do hope to yeah meet you one day in person. We'll have a big hug together. But yeah, it's been an amazing couple of hours. I've really enjoyed my time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No, you're more than welcome. You are more than welcome. You enjoy the rest of your day and your week. And yeah, let's keep in touch. Bye-bye. Thank you.